Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. So this week on the podcast, I have a really fascinating guest, and I know I say that every week, but this is really deep inside baseball, uh, how how the industry works, how it's supposed to work, what it doesn't do. Ron Rhodes is a professor, lawyer, uh, fiduciary. He has been both in and around the industry in a number of capacities, both as a lawyer setting up trusts and estates and other such stuff running an RIA, running a a fiduciary shop, and uh, as a professor teaching financial planning and other things, he's probably best known as a gadfly who has been lobbying Congress, the SEC, FINRA, the Department of Labor. Uh, I call him a one-man wrecking crew. He, amongst other people, prevented FINRA from becoming the uh, SRO for the RIA industry. He has been absolutely crucial in moving the ball down the field for moving towards a fiduciary standard uh, for all advisors or many advisors. This is, if you're interested in managing money, running a, a firm, or understanding the regulatory process and how it impacts investors and brokers and advisors, uh, this is really a, a very deep dive into that sort of stuff. Stay with it. It gets more and more detailed and interesting as we go on. And the podcast portion, as you'll hear, is is really terrific. So without any further ado, my conversation with Professor Ron Rhodes. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest this week is Ron Rhodes. He is a professor at Western Kentucky University, where he is chairman of the financial planning program and teaches applied investments, retirement planning, and estate planning. You may not have heard of Ron if you're not in the asset management business or if you don't work for the SEC, but a little bit of background as to who he is. He was voted Wealth Management Magazine's uh, most influential person today. That was back in 2014. He is the recipient of the Tamar Frankel Fiduciary of the Year Award, and he was named by Investment Advisor Magazine one of the 25 most influential persons in the asset management business. Ron, welcome to Bloomberg. Great, thanks. Good to be here, Barry. So so that was a little bit of an ambiguous introduction. I want to ask you a question for someone like me, you do many different things. You wear many different hats. But when yep. people first meet you and in the conversation they ask, what do you do? How do you answer that question? Well, you know, I ask people to think back to, to their kids. And as they were growing up, um, kids need to be pushed uh, to develop. And mm-hmm. and that's why God invented mothers. Okay. But but those kids are sent off to college by their mothers, and, and that's why God in, invented college professors like myself. So your job is to push them in the right direction. Push them, expand their comfort zones, to, to show them 
how to develop and maintain relationships other than the relationship they have with their smartphone or their Facebook page, you know. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And uh, to, to get them to set goals and, and really think about self-improving themselves and, and, and getting ready for a career. But uh, you, you do more than push college students. You push the SEC. You yes. push the Department of Labor. You push FINRA, which is the brokerage world's self-regulating organization. Let, yep. Let's talk a little bit about how you found your way from the practice of law into finance and ultimately into academia. How, how did you find your way into finance as a lawyer? Now, it goes back to college years. You know, when I was uh, going to college, I was uh, working during the day at Walt Disney World. I was a Disney character. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I just remember all the time having a book about stocks or bonds. Uh, this was probably about 1980 or so. Tucked away in, in my bear costume and during breaks off stage, I, I'd be reading it. So wait, you were a bear reading about stocks. There's some, yes. there's some irony in that. I know. Yeah, that's, that's, that's neat. Uh, yeah, you know, I was Baloo and Brer Bear and Little John and Goofy as well. Uh-huh. Uh, used, my, my clients used to say that they had a Goofy attorney, uh, <laughs> so to speak. Or a, or a bearish uh, advisor. It's the same thing. <laughs> right. so, so you're reading about stocks. But how do you make the transition from being a lawyer to, to being full-on in finance? Well, I was an estate planning and tax attorney, and, and mm-hmm. I got recruited to, to help uh, a, a major financial services company uh, attack the 401k market uh, with a retirement planning program. And, and that lasted for about six months. Uh, okay. Uh, enjoyed it. Was glad to see the program kind of in because uh, it involved flying up here to New York and back uh, from Florida, where I was at the time, every week for 26 weeks straight. But after that, uh, some CPAs that I had helped put together their firm uh, from a legal standpoint approached me and said, you know, we're not very happy referring uh, who we're referring to right now. And I said, well, I'm not very happy. So they asked me to help them interview uh, financial advisors in our community. And we did about a dozen interviews and nobody even came close to to meeting our expectations. Right. And then we got together and said, we just need to do this ourselves. Huh. We, we don't want to send our clients here and here. We, we need to do it the right way. And we explored eight different business models and, and ended up forming our own independent registered investment advisory firm. So that's kind of fascinating. So you kind of, uh, it's the old joke about Dick Cheney. He interviewed a lot of people for vice president and finally said, ah, there's nobody capable. <laughs> I'll do it. That that turned out to be true. Um so how, what then led to the transition to academia? You did that for a number of years. What brought you back to college? Well, you know, if you're a good financial advisor, you're, you're really a good educator. Mm-hmm. You like counseling, and, and kind of teaching college is counseling on, on mass, in essence. Uh, so, so instead of doing it one-on-one, you're doing it in front of a whole room full of right. minds to be molded. Right, and, and I, I always thought I'd get into teaching. When I was in law school, I would run study groups of 100 people, and mm-hmm. you know that the, the first-year students, as a third-year student, I'd be giving them a study instruction. But it, the opportunity presented itself, and, and I rushed for it because, uh, and I've never looked back because the, the students, it's so great to see them transform, even over the course of a semester, especially over two or three years. And I, I just love going to work at every day at Western Kentucky University. It's just a fantastic place to be. So so speaking of educating and counseling, in, in the last minute or so we have, you've been pretty active on Twitter. You've been an active blogger for, it seems, at least five years. 
How do you find those mediums um, are, are in terms of trying to get a message out? I, I'm pretty surprised when I go to industry conferences that the number of people who come up to me and and said that they've read my blogs and, and we have a nice discussion about it. Um, I found you through Twitter. That's how I first – you know I've been yes. writing about the fiduciary standard for yes. years. Yes, that's and how I found I, you. I, I thought it was kind of a lonely thing, and there's this guy, Ron Rhodes, yep. just scorched earth, destroying everything in his path. I'm like, <laughs> I have to follow this guy. Do people comment to you about, oh, I follow you on Twitter, I know who you are from that? Oh, absolutely. Yes. I, I don't really hold things back very much. I'm a little bit no. on the blunt side uh, when it comes to things like Finra Well, you seem SC. so genteel in person. You <laughs> so, uh, I'm, just a, I'm just a big soft bear. Is that what it is? No. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Ron Rhodes, Professor Ron Rhodes of Western Kentucky University. He is an expert on fiduciary standards, uh, has been a gadfly for the SEC, Department of Labor, and especially FINRA. We're going to talk a little bit about that in a little while. Let's talk a bit about the financial planning industry where you have lots of background and, and lots of published work. What do you think clients shouldn't expect from their relationship with a financial advisor? Barry, in one word, trust. And 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 if you look at trust, it's really got three elements to it. Mm-hmm. The, the first is that the advisor before you is a true expert in what they do. Mm-hmm. The second is they're going to put your best interest forth and, and keep those paramount above their, Meaning own, above it, their own interest. It's not about their commission or exactly. selling whatever product has the highest... Um, bonus on it. It's about the client's interest first. Yes. There ought to be compensation that should be reasonable, agreed to in advance. Transparent. Absolutely. Completely transparent. And and then work under that constraint to go out and find the the best investment strategies and the best best products to implement those strategies for the client. And lastly, it's candor. You know, a lot Mm -hmm. of times clients really need to hear something they may not want to hear, like spend less money or uh, control thyself in some way right. uh, or, you know, keep the emotions down, you know, stick with this market, things we, like that. We have conversations with people sometimes. I'll get emails where people say, I have this big inheritance and I want to seed four different hedge funds and whichever one gives me the best returns, that's what I'm giving my money to. Like you understand game theory, right? You understand you just gave these guys an incentive to do nothing but throw Hail Marys because if they lose, hey, the odds are against them getting your money. And if they win, they, they're they not going to be able to put up those numbers again. So you've created a terrible situation. People don't seem to think those sort of things through. I, I think financial advisors do a lot of keeping clients from making big mistakes. In Behavioral life. counseling. Absolutely. That In fact... Almost every financial planner I've ever talked to says, you know, I wish I had a minor in psychology. And, and it's that important. That, that's quite yeah. interesting. So let's talk about that. That's one of the things I think the industry is doing right. What else is the industry doing right? And what else is it doing wrong? Well, I, I think what it's doing wrong and, and where we really think seen things change over the last 40 years is we went from this fixed commission structure and, and abandoned that in 1975. That was a good thing. But it's been replaced with a whole bunch of variable compensation, 
mm-hmm. where people can get paid a lot more money to sell one product over another, and just a ton of conflicts of interest, and a lot of hidden fees. Uh, clients have no idea what they're paying. I, I have had many a prospective client client come in to see me, and they say, you know what? I've never paid my broker a dime. You know, <laughs> I get that on the bond side of things. Oh, Absolutely. no, they don't charge me any commission yes. on bonds. Yes. Well, that's because it's it, it's not, you know, there's a difference between an agency transaction and a principal transaction. They're selling you bonds at a markup, not a commission. It's even worse. Right. No, no, no. It doesn't show that on any of my confirmations. And, and then when I, when I take them through and say, here's the commission, here's the 12B1 fees, here's the payment for shelf space that the brokerage firm is getting right. of some amount, okay? Like and, it's a, like it's potato chips in the supermarket. If you want to be on the end cap, they're paying <laughs> the supermarkets for that placement. And there's soft dollar compensation, and there's other revenue sharing and gifts and the like. And, and when you start explaining this to clients, they typically get really angry <laughs> because they thought that this guy was their best friend and it turns out that they were a very good product salesperson. The the old joke is if you want a friend on Wall Street, get a dog. And it's really <laughs> true because they're there to do the business of their firm. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but it's important that investors educate themselves and find out how that guy who's not charging you for those bond transactions is driving a really nice car and living in a really big house. And, and doing it without much training in what they do. It, it's almost as if sometimes uh, when people get hired in, in the, some of the brokerage firms nowadays, they get training in how to sell. Of course. But they don't really get training in investment strategy, investment portfolio management, tax tax efficient investing, uh, all the things that they really should know to be experts. They're nowhere close to being an expert. Now, that is a change from years ago because I know when I was coming up – look, I've been in this business for 20-plus years – I had friends that started at Merrill Lynch, started at Morgan Stanley, started at Bear Stearns, and these guys went through a rigorous six-month training program. Do these exist anymore? They have to still be around somewhere, or has the industry given up on training people, and it's CFPs and CFAs that are where all the training take place? I think for a large part, they went away. Mm-hmm. And and the old model that you perhaps grew up in, the old Smith Bart Marty mm-hmm. commercial, uh, we make money the old-fashioned way we earned it. Mm-hmm. That largely disappeared, and it's now just beginning to get back, come back in. Part of that's because people want advice. People, and, and it's really a lot more complicated world out there. For uh, sure, financially, tax-wise, people don't need just investment advice; they need financial advice, financial planning. And, and that's where you see things like the uh, Certified Financial Planner Board of Standards with their CFP certification becoming really prized uh, as a standard for investors. So we've seen the industry change a lot over the past couple of years, past couple of decades. What do you think are, are the next couple of changes we're going to see going forward? Uh, this year is likely to be transformational. Transformational, 2016. Now, we know the Department of Labor fiduciary standards coming. We're going to talk more about that in our last segment. But what else do you see changing the landscape for investors? Well, the fiduciary standard is going to change it mm-hmm. in, in a lot of different ways. So, so let's look at the, the longer-term impacts of this. There are some things that exist now which are largely going to go away, mm-hmm. if, if not by the regulators themselves, just from a standpoint of having a more competitive marketplace. 12B1 fees, Go likely away. to be gone. 
okay? Payment for shelf space. Totally. Okay? Proprietary funds, a lot less, a lot less of that. How much of this is driven by the massive inflows we see into Vanguard? That's just kidding. In the last minute we have, Vanguard is sucking up all the oxygen in the room and all the active managers out there seem to be flailing. Is that a competitive factor that's driving this? To, to some degree, yes, because once you start eliminating all these hidden fees and you get down to lower fees, all the academic research shows lower fees means higher returns for investors. Mm -hmm. And investors are starting to catch on to this. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Professor Ron Rhodes. He's from Western Kentucky University and a specialist in various uh, forms of financial planning and the rules and regulations and standards that govern the different participants in the market. Let's talk a little bit uh, about this and, and, and start out really broadly. Put on your lawyer's hat and explain what is it that a duty of care is, who's it owed to, and why is this important? Well, for financial services, what it means is you have to uh, have a certain level of expertise mm -hmm. and apply that expertise uh, in designing investment strategies and in selecting investment products. Mm -hmm. and, and that's part of a duty of care uh, of the fiduciary standard, the duty of care. The other part is the duty of loyalty, which means you got to keep the client's best interest paramount. Mm -hmm. What's interesting is that most brokers who are not acting as fiduciaries don't have either of these duties. They're not obligated to have any sort of expertise. That's and right. And they're not obligated to put the client's uh, interest first. They're just governed by a suitability standard, something that's far less. It, it's amazing in this world that we have so many service providers that have a duty of care. Mm -hmm. And what the suitability doctrine really does, it was adopted way back in the early 20th century when the whole theory of negligence was developing in the law. Mm hmm was it basically was enacted because we didn't want to hold brokers responsible for stock recommendations when they were only executing stock trades. Right. And right. listen, stocks go up and down. You can't right. hold people responsible for good faith, bad choices. But suitability is such a low standard. I used to call that don't sell IPOs to grandma standard. <laughs> uh, but, but there's a little more to it. Explain exactly what suitability means and how much different that is than fiduciary. Suitability essentially says don't sell things that explode, mm -hmm. that you know are going to explode. And, and perhaps for elderly clients, don't even sell firecrackers. Right. Right? But suitability is basically says you don't have a duty of care. All you have to do is make sure that this investment could be held by this particular client. It doesn't have to be the best investment. If mm -hmm. it's in a taxable account, it doesn't have to be tax efficient. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be a low-cost investment. In fact, it can be a very high-cost investment. Yeah. And it, from a standpoint, it, it doesn't even require you to think about an entire portfolio together and how you can minimize the risk in that portfolio. It doesn't even require the application of what we've known for 65 years now, modern portfolio theory. So is it fair to say suitability is can be summed up as Try not to be reckless? Is it is it that low a standard? I think it actually allows people to be reckless. Oh really? I think it's I think it's below that point. So recklessness, all right, it was reckless, <laughs> but it wasn't unsuitable. Yeah. Gross negligence, perhaps, is <laughs> is 
is uh, outraw. And the suitability is really a standard that it's very difficult to actually say what it is. It's so vague. So so let's talk a little bit about the regulator in this space. The brokerage world has a SRO, a self-regulating organization, formerly NASDAQ or NASDR. Now it's FINRA. You have been a major thorn in their side, in, in mostly about this suitability standard and their opposition to the fiduciary standard Tell us a little bit about your your relationship with FINRA. Let me take this to the 50,000-foot view. Back in 1938, Senator Maloney, mm-hmm. who was the author of the Maloney Act that led to the creation of NASD, which is now FINRA, he said the purpose of this SRO is to create an organization that will gradually over time raise the standard of conduct for those in the securities business to the various highest standard under the law. Mm-hmm. In other words, raise it to the fiduciary standard. Right. That vision has never been put in place. You know, if we go back to the 40s, uh, FINRA, its its biggest accomplishment, it wrote, was uh, not it was preventing the separation of brokers from dealers. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that's a conflict of interest situation. They, they basically led to this huge conflict of interest in financial services. They maintained that. Uh, when they adopted their first rule book in 1942, even though they acknowledged in their first newsletter that brokers are often fiduciaries mm-hmm. to clients that they have a relationship of trust and confidence with, there's nothing in the FINRA rule book now or back then that has the word fiduciary in it. So in the last minute we have in this segment, there was a time not too long ago when FINRA made a play to take over managing or supervising um, the RIA world, the Registered Investment Advisory world, currently supervised by the SEC. You pretty much were a one-man wrecking ball that stopped that. Tell us a little bit about how that happened. I think there were a lot of people involved in that effort to, to stop them. It, it was a, a bill that's coming out of the Senate and uh, that was proposed, and there was just a lot of opposition from consumer groups, from myself, but many others to that. To basically say, listen, we shouldn't be rewarding FINRA by giving them oversight of investment advisors. Yes, we need more oversight. We need more inspections, but this is not the way to do it. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Professor Ron Rhodes. He is an expert on fiduciary standards and legal obligations that advisors owe their clients, namely the investment community. Let's talk a little bit about the fiduciary standard. Back in 2011, as part of the Dodd-Frank rules, the SEC had to research, a um, put together a study on the appropriate standards uh, for brokers and advisors and all sorts of people in the industry. And they put out this long research report. I actually published it on the blog some time ago uh, that specifically said, and I'm quoting, all financial advisors and stockbrokers should be placed under a uniform fiduciary standard. First, what does that mean? And second, why hasn't that happened? Back, back in 2011, that, that study came out from the SEC staff. Mm-hmm. And we had spent a, a lot of time with the SEC, uh, myself and many other uh, fiduciary advocates, educating them about the fiduciary standard and why it was so important and what this would mean if it was adopted. And, and it came out with what I thought was a pretty strong report on it. Very, very strong. Yeah. 
You could you could tell by the pushback to it immediately from the rest of the industry. <laughs> the SEC commissioners did not sign off on that. It's not signed by any right. SEC commissioner. Uh, kind of an indication of the split in the commission that has persisted for probably at least a decade now. Uh, but you know now the, the situation at the SEC is quite changed. You, you have you always have staff turnover, right? And the senior staff at the SEC, they all worked on Wall Street before. Uh-huh. Uh, and they, a lot of them worked at the SEC, went to Wall Street, came back. A little bit of a revolving door going on? Uh, uh, tremendous. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the interesting things is, and it doesn't happen for all the SEC staff, but, but it does happen generally between New York and Washington. You leave Wall Street, you get a bonus to go work at a government agency, and they promise that you'll have a job when you come back. Does that influence what you do in Washington? C- certainly it does. Yeah, there's no way around the fact that it's going to influence your decision-making. And right now, the chair of the SEC is surrounded by senior staff that really hold an allegiance to to Wall Street and don't want the fiduciary standard. Hmm, that's amazing. That um, So let's talk a little bit. You you referenced the fiduciary standard in an earlier segment, but let's let's get into that again. Explain exactly what the... F- so you're an investor. You mm-hmm. you open a brokerage account or you open a um, uh, an account with an advisor. What should the fiduciary standard mean to you as an investor? First, that you're dealing with an expert. Mm-hmm. Right. Someone who, if you say, I want a prudent portfolio, that's what they'll give you. Mm-hmm. And, and, and generally speaking, there's an assumption that that's what you want, although not all advisors live up to it. And, and second, this... What really makes the fiduciary standard distinctive is the duty of loyalty, the duty to keep your best interest first paramount. Best interest of the client over yeah. that of the advisor. And the, and the only way to do that is to avoid conflicts of interest, to say, hey, we agree on how much I'm going to get paid. I'm going to do my best to not receive any third-party compensation whatsoever. When you say do your best, you know, someone's giving you a check, you know it, it should be pretty easy to not get paid by anybody but the clients, or or am I wrong? Generally, it's easy, but for example, uh, I'll go to a custodial conference mm-hmm. uh, that I use the custodian for my client funds. Mm-hmm. And I don't pay for the education at the conference. I pay my own way there, the hotel, the, but right. they give some free food and and even Pens some free and entertainment other, and stuff uh, like that. Other swag you pick right. up in the in the right. <laughs> in the booth room. So that that's a minor conflict of interest. It, I would say it's not going to influence my judgment at all. Mm-hmm. But if I went to twelve of those conferences a year, it might. Right. right. So so you have to. There are small conflicts, and everybody has, but it's avoiding those major conflicts. But even if you don't avoid a conflict, then this is the key to the duty of loyalty. A lot of people out there, including someone Wall Street lawyers, they, they, they think that all that's required is you have to disclose the conflict of interest. But that's not what the fiduciary law the says at all. The client's interest must come first. And so having a conflict of interest is a breach of a fiduciary duty. You have to cure that breach. How do you do that? You disclose the conflict and its ramifications to the client. You do that affirmatively. You make sure the client understands, and that's a duty that's subjectively applied. You get the client's informed consent, and mm. here's the key: no client's ever going to consent to be to be harmed. Right. Right. One would one would hope. So, so if you say, "Well, I'm going to get an extra fifty basis points when I sell you this on an ongoing compensation," 
as opposed to the exact same product elsewhere. Exactly. That costs. By the way, when I've reviewed portfolios, I've seen people with S and P five hundred <laughs> holdings at like one and a quarter internal expense or one percent. Yes. You could pick that up at a Vanguard or a Dimensional for almost nothing. Eight bits, right. twelve bits, something in, insane. Six basis points. How can anyone justify an index fund with a one percent internal expense ratio? You, you can't. You can't. And, There's just no way of doing it. So, so we talked about the the SEC study and how they proposed a uniform standard. That hasn't happened, but the Department of Labor has now stepped in and said retirement accounts are a form of compensation. We cover compensation, and therefore we're going to cover the standards for people who are managing these because essentially they're managing compensation and therefore we're implying the fiduciary standard. How did that come about? Well, uh, Assistant Secretary Phyllis Borsi over at the Department of Labor, who, who I really admire, when she came on board about seven years ago, she asked her staff, what are the things that we can do to improve retirement security for, for Americans? And, and they came up with a list. And some two of those things have already been implemented. What, they relate what are those? to Disclosures to plan sponsors mm -hmm. and disclosures to plan participants. They've already had a huge impact. Uh, once you disclose all the fees and costs, it tends to lower things. I so, can't, by the way, I can't tell you how often we look at a 401k plan and the answer is, who the heck put this together? Yep. Oh, well, the boss's brother-in-law did it. That sort right. of stuff has really tailed off because there's an obligation on the employer to, they have a fiduciary standard. They if they're do, offering a 401k. They do. And, and it's a, it, they need employers that they're not in the business of, of creating portfolios for their employees. They run a business. Mm -hmm. So they need a trusted advisor. And if they don't have a trusted advisor, the employer is the one who is on the hook. But under the suitability standard, if some broker recommended, here's 20 funds and they're all horrible funds, the broker's not on the hook. Right. That, and and that's, that, exactly. that's a real problem. And that's usually the, the aforementioned brother-in-law. That changed so, so a Department of, of ago, right? Well, Department of Labor is in the middle of fixing this with something called its <laughs> conflict of interest rule. Mm -hmm. It's supposed to be finalized, uh, come out later this spring, and hopefully, hopefully implemented by the end of 2016. And it's going to basically say, if you're providing advice to either defined contribution plans that mm -hmm. are governed by ERISA, like 401k plans, some 403bs, or if you're providing advice to IRA accounts. Oh, really? As well. That's interesting. Then you are a fiduciary. And and all these fiduciary obligations result. Imagine, we're going from about 20% of, of publicly traded investments being subject to a fiduciary standard, mostly in defined benefit plans and right. endowment funds, to somewhere between 40 to 50%. That's a tipping point. Yeah, that's massive. I will tell yeah. you, in my own office, outside of the 401k stuff, I would say about 40% of the portfolios are in IRAs. People yes. have rollovers. They set up their – that's a huge, huge change. So about half of the total assets under management are going to be governed by a fiduciary standard by the time this year rolls around. Can anything stop this rule from being put into effect? Well, Wall Street is really heavily – heavily lobbying Congress to, to stop it. They didn't succeed in the budget negotiations back in December. That was really their biggest chance. Mm -hmm. uh, they're still trying desperately to get some bills uh, passed. Uh, 
I'm going down to D.C. right after this to to, to meet uh, on Capitol Hills to, to try to stop some of that. A lot of there's 80 organizations that are pro fiduciary supporting the rule. I, I think it's got a really really good chance of getting through this year. That that's that's really quite quite amazing. For the life of I've I've seen all these arguments against it, which all come down to hey we're going to lose a lot of money in fees. But without me being glib or snarky. Are there any credible arguments against the fiduciary standard? Not, not really. <laughs> you know, it's not just me because I look. We both went to law school. Absolutely. You know, you know what moot court is. You have to adopt the other party's argument and argue on their behalf. Yep. You have to be able to switch hats, and you cannot understand your own position unless you can argue your opponent's position. And I feel like I have a blind spot with this. Because for the life of me, I cannot find a single credible ar- argument other than we're going to lose a lot of, of fees if we go from suitability to fiduciary. I, I, you know, I would say this. There's always a tension in our society between one, one body of p- p- thought that says people have to have self-responsibility for what they do themselves. And there's another body of thought that says, well, wait a minute. We, the law needs to protect people sometimes. It needs to be a little paternalistic. And people hate that word paternalistic. In uh, financial services, really the question is, does the average American, does almost any American, can they, can they navigate this complex financial and investment world themselves when people are trying to sell some really lousy stuff to them? Uh, my experience with that is maybe one in a thousand We've been talking with Professor Ron Rhodes of Western Kentucky University. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and hang around for our podcast extras where we keep the digital tape rolling and continue chatting about all sorts of things. Be sure and check out my daily column on BloombergView.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, This is the portion too loud. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, I have as a, my special guest this week, Ron Rhodes. Ron, thank you so much for coming all the way up from D.C. and doing this. I know you're heading back down to D.C. Yes, thank uh, you. Um, you're going you're gonna to meet with a bunch of um, organizations and people on the Hill about the fiduciary standard. Who, who's on your hit parade? Are you going to be seeing... The Consumer Financial Protection Board, are they on your, your list? Sometimes they are, but not this trip. Uh, typically, uh, it's uh, the Senate Finance uh, and Senate Banking Committees, our, our, the House Education and Workforce uh, Committee. Senator Warren, is she as part of your... Uh... Uh, yes, I, in the past, uh, not not on this trip. Uh, you know, there's so many senators and representatives there. Uh, every trip we, we 435 see. 435 or every, like every trip to D.C., it's usually seeing, you know, another, uh, f- another about group. five a day. Uh, either them or their staffs, their mm-hmm. legislative council, their general council, uh, or the committee staff, uh, very influential committee staff. Uh, but also, you know, while we're there, we typically reach out to, to some of the organizations, uh, uh, visits to the SEC. There's still some stuff going on there. Right. Do, does it feel like the tide has shifted on this on this on this fight? Is it feel like it doesn't seem like an uphill battle anymore? It seems like this is going to happen. Definitely, I, I would say once we got past the December uh, budget negotiations, uh, I don't see anything on the horizon 
that is a hurdle to this being implemented uh, is not to say that the most intensive coordinated lobbying effort uh, that Capitol Hill has ever seen is not occurring as we speak right now. Oh, really? Oh, absolutely. Every time I go to Capitol Hill, it's like, wow, we, we can't believe it. We've seen 40, 50 people on the anti-fiduciary side, including the CEOs of some of our, our big investment banks, making personal trips down there to lobby. Uh, well, they got stock options at risk. They so they see they, can't put they see forty or fifty of them for every one person on, on the pro fiduciary side, and they say we're very happy to see you. Uh, well, I've been actually going back and forth with uh, Senator Warren's staff about yes. having her as a guest, and yes. I would love to discuss this with her the next time you're in your her office. Point her to this podcast, I, I and sure let's will. get her her down in in New York for this. Um, so let's go over a few of the questions that that we missed during the actual. Uh, broadcast portion, um, and we were all over the map. So let's talk a little bit about the proper roles of advisors. I never got to that question. You, you mentioned expertise and, and fiduciary standard, but a broker and an advisor, how do they operate as counselors to investors? What should their proper roles be? I, I, I think that a good financial counselor is a steward of not only wealth, but also the client's hopes and dreams. Mm-hmm. And and when we think about wealth and, and the accumulation of wealth, that's not an ends. That's a means to an end. And, and what you do with wealth is you buy things like financial security or you buy time that you can spend to better develop your relationships and maintain relationships with family and friends. Or, or you explore the world with it in some way, expand your horizons, or, or you give back to the community in some way. Uh, and, and all of those things, if you ask, what is the purpose of all those things? It all leads to one thing, happiness. And, and not happiness as a destination, but happiness every day uh, along the journey. And so I really think financial advisors do that. They, they, they are stewards of clients' happiness. Hmm, quite quite interesting. You know, we never got to talk about the robo-advisors. Any thoughts no. about that? That That's kind of an interesting uh, um, change over the past couple of years. I, I think it was a change that was developed from software that financial advisors have been using for over a decade for rebalancing mm-hmm. portfolios uh, tax efficiently. Uh, also, software that has been used to gather client information more efficiently, Mm -hmm. and also report out, especially portfolio reporting software online, updated every day. And and you combine those three things with a slick interface, and you adopt some mass market methodology to it, lower the fees, and and that's essentially what a robo-advisor is. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's been an interesting development. I'm not sure how long it's going to last. It'll last till the next major... Financial crisis when people don't know what the heck to do with themselves. Look, well, asset it, it allocation. Depends. It depends. Uh, you know, we talked about uh, this the other day in the office. Asset allocation is a commodity product. It's it's inexpensive or free, but it, it advice is. and good advice is fairly expensive. I don't know how you can set a person's asset allocation without having a personal conversation with them, because it's not about risk tolerance. And a lot of times you'll see. The robo-advisors do these online risk tolerance sure, questionnaires. they're, they're and, really good. 
you know, but they're helpful. They're but helpful, they but, so but they're limited. Right. They're, they're inherently limited. You cannot design a risk tolerance questionnaire uh, that has enough questions to really figure it out where someone needs to be as opposed to what their tolerance for risk is. It helps you, but people's need to take on risk is something completely different. And, and that's set by a lot of different factors. Right. You need to have this hand-holding with the client. To, to ascertain their need for risk. Yeah, investment management, I, you know, I tell my students, I can train you to be a great investment portfolio manager in a year. But if you want to be a great financial planner, it's going to take you five to 10 years. Really? It's Why to, is that? Is it just a matter of life experience and knowing the sort of cycles clients go through, or is it something something else? Financial planning is both broad in what it covers, tax planning, estate planning, insurance issues, uh, maintaining debt, paying off debt, major expenditures planning. So many people make huge mistakes in that area. Uh, and, and investments is only one part of that. Right. So you have this very broad area, but it's also pretty deep. And so the only way to start connecting those dots, you know, if you do one decision over here, how does it affect something way over mm-hmm. here is through experience. And, and it's going to take five to 10 years of experience. I think for most people to become an excellent financial planner. Hmm. That's, that's fascinating. I'm, I'm glad I asked that question because we, uh, we missed it. Um, a couple of questions. We talked a little bit about uh, FINRA. One of the things I wanted to ask about, was the so-called hybrid model that seems to exist at some of the big brokerage firms. So they have a suitability standard most of the time, but to sell certain products, they use a uh, uh, an RIA. So someone's both an RIA and a broker. So sometimes it's a, a fiduciary standard, and sometimes it's just suitability. How do you resolve that that conflict of interest? You can't. You can't. Not for the same client. If you're if you're trying to be a fiduciary to a client, and at the same time you're trying to sell them something, mm-hmm. no person can wear two hats at the same time. That's it's an old adage that goes back really millennia. Uh, that basically says no man can serve two masters exactly. at one time. Uh, so you you cannot reconcile those functions. You can also remember uh, under fiduciary law. Fiduciary is a status. You become a fiduciary to that client, which means the entire relationship should be subject to that fiduciary it duty. It can't be a part-time thing. It has to be correct. And 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 if people get sued, if if brokers get sued, they don't get sued under the Advisors Act and the way the SEC applies that. They get sued under state common law and how that's applied. Mm-hmm. And fiduciary status attaches to, to to the entirety of the relationship, and and it really constrains what you're able to do for that So wait, if, if someone's working in a big brokerage firm that is a hybrid model where some of the work they do is brokerage and commission-based and some of it is RIA fee-based, you're saying you really can't have both standards with the same client because if they sue you, your brokerage behavior is going to be governed under the fiduciary standard? Is that what happens in, in certain states? Am I hearing that right? That is, that is likely to be applied in certain states because wow. the rules are not the same in every state, the way the common law has developed. Uh, of course, you're, you're being subject to arbitration here, too. That, I was about to ask that. So <laughs> if you have the arbitration um, agreement, 
So really, that's a way out. Is that a way out of the arbitration agreement? Absolutely. Is to basically say, hey, I'm subject to arbitration rules, but there's a conflict because there's a fiduciary standard here, and therefore you're out? I haven't seen a lot of those cases. One would think that's a ripe area for litigation. In fact, our, the, a complaint of breach of fiduciary is the most common complaint in arbitration, but, but not that many of those make it forward. Mm -hmm. uh, because you have to overcome this threshold, is the person a fiduciary? Then you have to apply the fiduciary standard. One of the big problems in arbitration is is arbitrators are trained to do what's fair. In, in essence, they're trained to ignore some of the procedural hurdles that it takes to get into arbitration, to, to, to make a lawsuit under the 34 Act, the Exchange mm -hmm. Act. And, and they're trained to do what's fair with clients. But that application of fairness actually works to lower the fiduciary strict the strictness of the fiduciary standard in the way it's applied. How how is that? Well, the fiduciary standard says, for example, when you have a conflict of interest, you have to do all these things, and even then, it, the transaction that you propose to the client must remain substantively fair, even with informed consent. Well, brokers, the, the arbitration process. A lot of the arbitrators come from the industry, but they don't come from the RIA side of the industry. They they come mainly from the broker side of the industry. And if you haven't operated in a fiduciary environment or you have not studied fiduciary law and mm -hmm. what it requires and why fiduciary standards are applied, your perception of what is fair is going to be dramatically different. Take a look at William Cohan's um, work on the arbitration issues with FINRA. He's absolutely been brutal. He, he And I know that they've changed up some of the things they've done, but if you look in the 1990s and, and the 2000s, it was not a pleasant situation to be a plaintiff in, even if you were egregiously ripped off. It wasn't a place to go get justice, and, and Cohan just scorched earth columns on this, both here at Bloomberg and elsewhere. Um, you read some of his, and it's like, how is this even allowed to exist? The New York Times just had a massive series on the problems with arbitration and how inherently unfair it is and how biased it is, not just in finance, but any industry that has a arbitration clause, they're running the arbitration process. It's very industry-friendly. Uh, Arbitrators come in because they want to be rehired over and over again. Oh, it's absolutely. amazing that this has developed the way it has. Yeah. I, we need to do away with mandatory arbitration. There's no question about it. Wow. That that and what are the odds of that happening anytime soon? The SEC actually has authority to do that, but who controls the SEC? It's five commissioners, uh, three three from the party that controls the White House, two from the opposition party, and like you said, there's a lot there's of a lot doors. of influence yep. from Wall Street over the SEC. Yeah, no doubt. And, and it's really going to take an extremely strong SEC chair and two, at least two commissioners who are also extremely strong to to really start protecting consumers instead of protecting Wall Street and FINRA. Hmm. Quite quite fascinating. So there was an article in uh, the Wall Street Journal earlier this, this month that specifically talked about the outflow of brokers to advisors. Have you noticed any trends in the industry about people leaving the money center banks and the big brokerage firms? and either going to independent shops or going to RA advisors where there is a fiduciary standard. 
A, what's what's going on with that? Why is that happening? And what does this mean for investors? Uh, you, you see that and you see it accelerating. I think there's been several reasons for that. One is there's there's firms out there that are roll-up firms, we call them, that are actually recruiting brokers out of the, the wirehouse environment, the, the good teams. Uh, and they are fostering the process of, of getting out. Mm-hmm. Uh, beyond that, as the article mentioned, a lot of the ties that they have in these deferred compensation pra- packages are going away. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's really going to give brokers the freedom. Uh when brokers do leave, about 80% of the clients typically follow them. That's oh, a pretty really? healthy it's percentage. That, it's that much. Wow. Yeah. And it's not to say that there aren't fights about that, uh, but uh, they end up with about 80% of the clients on average. Uh, that's a pretty healthy number. So despite all the anti-solicitation provisions that you see in brokerage, uh, brokerage firm, broker agreements, uh, a lot of the clients are, are following them. I bet I bet the average listener is not familiar with the broker's protocol, which yes. governs the process of hiring and recruiting brokers from um, major brokerage firms. Talk about that for a sec, if you if you would. Well, that was designed to eliminate the lawsuits that were flying between brokerage firms, mm-hmm. and there's about 400 brokerage firms that have signed onto that agreement. And for the life of me, I can't imagine why any investment advisory firm or even a smaller broker-dealer who wants to recruit would sign that protocol because it's basically say, okay, we get this team, we have to pay you some money, and, and that's how we resolve it. And, and if, a, if a team from a wirehouse wants to go independent, mm-hmm. they can do that. They can start sure. their own firm and go independent. Nobody's going to pay for their clients. They just take the clients, 80% of them perhaps, with them. So the the way I've I've read the protocol rules are if you hire somebody from a brokerage firm, here are the rules that the brokers must follow. They right. can't take any documentation out with them. It's like a whole run of things. They could take names, email addresses, phone numbers, but in theory they can't take account numbers. It, it's kind of crazy, but it means when these people leave, there's no litigation. So it, right. to some degree, it, it encourages or allows brokers to go without causing a lawsuit or a fear of a lawsuit from where they land. If they join another brokerage firm that's a member of the protocol. Mm-hmm. But a lot of them are going independent and not right. going that way. And that's where you see the litigation. So this is not right. for the benefit of the investors. This is strictly oh. for the benefit of the brokerage It, it hurts the investor. And, and here's a better way of Explain dealing why with- Explain why it doesn't hurt the investors. Well, what happens is your broker leaves. You want to follow them. The broker sends transfer forms back over. The brokerage firm is upset about this. They'll slow down the transfer process. They won't return calls. Uh, the client is not being served in the middle of all of this most of the time. Mm-hmm. They're in limbo. Yeah. Then, then the, the, the old firm is still calling the client, trying to establish a relationship with right. a, another advisor at that firm while the other the broker who left is is out there also trying to, to serve the client, but can't get information. And it's just a mess for a client to be in. So what what should be there? What should exist instead of this protocol? What's the proper way for this to happen? I think the solution is to recognize that financial advisors have investments in these client relationships just as much as firms do. Mm-hmm. 
And perhaps this client relationship should not be owned by the firm itself, but ought to be shared with the financial advisor. And if a financial advisor leaves, whatever clients are taken, the financial advisor has to remit part of the fees from those clients for a certain number of years. Mm -hmm. But if those clients stay with the firm, the firm has to pay for part of that client relationship over to the financial advisor. That's a fair way of doing it. And, yeah. and it eliminates all this litigation. I, I can't imagine that ever happening. <laughs> that, that, that's amazing. Um, so as we see more people exiting the brokerage world to the, to the RIA side of things, to the fee-only advisor side, that also is going to drive more assets into the fiduciary standard. Oh, is that absolutely. A fair, that's a fair statement, Absolutely. Right? And advisors are leaving because a lot of times at the brokerage firms, they're being sold, told, push this proprietary mutual fund or push these bonds out that may be long-term bonds or push this investment IPO, initial public offering. The greatest commercial was right. the Schwab's put a little lipstick on this pig. And <laughs> I remember that. That's got to be 10 years ago, and it stayed with me. Because yes. you recognize those people. If you worked in the industry for any length of time, it's like, I know that guy. I watch people stand in front of a room and yes. say, say something similar to that. It, it was quite amazing. There's really a difference between what brokers want to do. Most individual brokers want to do the right thing for their clients. Most brokerage firms are worried about their top line and bottom line. And and there's really this this huge disconnect there. That's a ten. That's an inherent tension between the employee and the employer right. and the investor. Right, and it's going to get worse with the DOL rule because the DOL rule says individual advisors cannot be paid more, depending on what they recommend. But at the firm level, the firms can still receive more, and and this this disconnect is going to become a, a much bigger, and, and the result of that is. Brokers are not going to be happy when they go to work, mm -hmm. and they want to go someplace where they will be happy going to work, where they will be on the same side of the table as their clients. And they'll enjoy working with their clients in, in a more or less conflict-free environment. Put them on the same side of the table Absolutely. as the client and not have... So one would think market forces would have forced this to take place decades ago, but it really hasn't happened for a long, long time. I mean, this yes. this this tension has existed for a while, and yet there's a certain comfort level with big name brand firms who have a legal fiduciary obligation to their shareholders, not their outside clients. I, I was at a, a a conference of large firms. I was speaking at it uh, a couple so they have of years eggs ago. And rotten tomatoes, and, and, stuff, and I was or? talking about their need to evolve. Uh, and how they could evolve to embrace the fiduciary standards, set up different divisions and the like. And at the end of that, the, the first question was, but, but Ron, we have a fiduciary duty to our shareholders. And my reply to that was, was simple and straightforward. Yes, you do. Your market share as a large firm is going down every year. Every day. You, you keep up this trend, you won't have a firm for your shareholders. Right. If you have a fiduciary duty to your shareholder, you have an obligation to change. Who moved my cheese, people? This is this is not that difficult. Did did it resonate, or are they still stuck in the look? If anybody's stuck in the quarterly dash for profits, it's got to be Wall Street firms. 
did was a glimmer of recognition from any of the firms because by the way well, well, actually, these aren't yeah. dumb people these are really i've met with spoken to yes. interviewed a lot of these folks they're wicked sharp they're very smart and yet it seems this is an issue that's a blind spot for a lot of them it's it's hard to take a salesperson and adopt a fiduciary culture and a fiduciary culture needs to be driven from the very top of the firm right and and there's such a, a big difference between a sales culture and a fiduciary culture. It's a big transformation. But I will say this. Just over the last couple of years, we have seen some large firms adopt fiduciary platforms. Some of them kind of halfway. Oh, uh-huh. we still have some conflicts of interest, but we're going to eliminate most of them. Uh, one firm, one platform, and one firm is almost completely conflict-free. It's an asset under management using ETFs, mm-hmm. no proprietary products. Uh, that has that firm has a history of not doing underwriting, but it's a fairly large firm. So I see the movement, but By I, the way, it's you're not allowed to use names if you want to use names. <laughs> okay. Feel free. All right. Uh, so you know, I see the movement, and, and I see that they were recruiting. A lot of the firms are recruiting individuals to teams now. That the newer teams, that the younger brokers are, are forming teams of financial planners and entrepreneurs and uh, those who go out and get clients and those who help run, run the portfolios. Uh, much more fiduciary base, much more asset under management base. Uh, so there is some happening, but if you want to, you, you can't do it part way. If you do it part way, you're just you're just going to continue to see your market share. Shrink. So, so I've drank the Kool Aid. So I, it's hard for me to get back into a brokerage head mentality. I spent the first half of my career first on a trading desk and then as a, a strategist at a brokerage shop. So, <clears throat> flipping to the fiduciary side was really a very easy transition for me. It's really hard to go back to that old way of thinking. But I would imagine at the biggest shops in the world, the Merrill Lynch's and Morgan Stanley's and UBS's. Isn't it so much easier for them to manage a fiduciary platform? You would think their compliance overhead and the costs and the arbitrations and all that stuff, that practically goes away. You don't have to worry about guys running around doing stupid things. All the things we've seen, all the big scandals, the IPO spinning stuff, the after-hours market trading stuff, the mutual fund timing nonsense. Like, every, Think about all the major scandals we've seen over the past decade or two outside of Bernie Madoff. Had there been a, a pretty straightforward, yeah. fee-only, RIA, fiduciary standard, all that stuff practically disappears and the administrative and and compliance costs for these look if you have 10 or 15,000 right. advisors that administrative compliance overhead and legal overhead is monstrous you get rid of that incentive granted your fees are dropping dramatically but your costs are dropping much more dramatically or am i just naive and i've already drank uh from that from that bowl if you get away from the dual registrant and you go to a, a strict fee-only, conflict-free environment, th- the amount of complaints falls ninety percent dramatically. Your your liability insurance per per advisor goes down dramatically because it's just not that much exposure. As you said, your compliance costs fall. You still need compliance systems, but they're set up differently. 
And, and really the only way for the wirehouses to make this transformation is to really create units of fee-only advisors. Mm-hmm. And only, you're only going to be a registered investment advisor. You're not going to sell any products. We're going to set up some Chinese walls when it comes to, for example, buying bonds uh, and buying it out of our own inventory. Uh, we'll have a, a different trading desk that surveys the universe, including our offerings for that. You really need to to, to take a look at your structure and, and pretty much commit to having a, a completely different division uh, for these people to work under. Are any of the big firms experimenting with their own, all right, let's set up a Skunk Works pro- project and just do a, an RA-only, fiduciary-only division because that's where the wind is blowing, or has has no one tried that yet? I think there are teams that are doing that in firms, but I haven't seen an entire division set up that way. One yeah. one would think that that sort of experiment is look uh, for guys like you and I, me. This is let them keep doing it wrong. It just means more more clients, more assets, more advisors are coming over to our side of the street. If I was a wirehouse right now, I'd be doing what the rollups are doing. I'd be buying registered investment advisory practices that be taking the best of those practices, forming a large RA firm out of it. I'd be transitioning brokers out of the current environment or the dual registrant space over to this fee-only, RA-only space, uh, and allowing that to happen, allowing this transition to happening, giving those people who say, I don't like this brokerage environment anymore a place to go. Mm-hmm. And there's a little bit of that going on, but it's not as uh, pure as I would I would say it needs to be, and it's not promoted as much as it should be. It's tough to get a leopard to change their spots, and it's tough to cannibalize your own business. You know, not a lot of right. companies have that uh, ability to engage in creative destruction of their own model. I used to love watching Apple come out with a new version of the iPod every year in the 2000s that pretty much destroyed the previous version. Wait, why am I going to pay 500 for this when half as much money, I get twice as much storage? And every year they would do that. They wouldn't just introduce something at the top of the line and the bottom of the line. They would destroy. Not a lot of companies have the long-term perspective to say, we're going to destroy part of our own business because it's going to be so much better uh, for the rest of us, uh, look at what they did with the iPad and then the iPhone. Once they went to the big iPhone, they started losing sales on the on the iPads. It's it's fascinating yeah. that the finance industry that funds all these companies never really bought into that approach. The, the typical wirehouse firm on the brokerage business wants to make about 2% a year. 2% and, a year. Right. 2% a year of the assets that they manage. That's well, that, just not going to happen. That, that's, that's not going to happen under a fiduciary standard. That that's pretty uh, stiff. The you, I think of RIAs typically full service IAs as one percent shops, and sometimes a little cheaper. And the way you look at justifying that is okay. This is going to be a better portfolio than you're going to have access to. That'll cover a third of your fee and. We're going to talk you off the ledge when things get really bad, and that'll justify your fee. And by the way, here's all the planning, the wealth transfer, the estate planning, the generational sale of a business, all these different things that that a full-service RIA firm offers that helps to justify their fees. But 
You can't really justify more than 1% if you're a fiduciary. 2% is really a stiff fee. Yeah, for any for any st- substantial size portfolio, 2% is, is really getting up there. And what's interesting is the fee-only advisors, they're prevailing in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. There's, there's not enough of them right now. Uh, is that true? There's not enough fee-only advisors? There are about 15,000, as far as we can figure out, right. uh, fee-only advisors out there. Uh, there's a lot more RAAs, but a lot of them sell insurance products. They, they is have, the focus insurance or is the focus the uh, investment or, or a little of each? Uh, probably the majority of it is focus of insurance mm-hmm. because the state securities regulators said, listen, if you're going to go out and sell a, um equity-indexed annuity right. to someone and you're telling them to cash out of their uh, Stock IRA account or whatever, right. you have to have, be an investment advisor to give that advice to cash out. So they, they get the investment advisor license to then turn around and sell some annuity product and, under an and, insurance license. And insurance is wildly profitable as a uh, salesperson. The entire, I, I, it, I would not want to be owning insurance company stock if I was a stock picker right now. Really? Uh, well, I know the first year's premium, almost all of that is commission. Uh, We're pretty close to it. And, and you've got variable annuities that have very, very high cost structures and very high ongoing compensation. And equity index annuities, some of them paying 10 12% commissions or more. Wow. Uh, you apply a fiduciary standard to this. And, and you, create this, you create this army of purchasers' representatives. Right. And, and kind of what you were alluding to. It's going gonna, it's gonna to cut the asset manager's fees dramatically. Asset managers are coming out with more and more products every day. For fee-only advisors, but the, the fees and costs have to be transparent, mm-hmm. and they need to be a lot lower. And, and the asset managers, some of them are realizing this. Some of them are obviously stuck in quicksand. So, some people have been calling this the Vanguard effect, that whatever sector Vanguard plows its way into, in general, the fees tend to go down because Vanguard is so inexpensive. We see something comparable with dimensional funds. Right. I, I had a... David Booth here is the CEO yes. of um, of Dimensional Funds. We also had Bill McNabb from Vanguard. But they're another shop that's very inexpensive, and right. any space they go into, their competitors sort of see their, their fees drop. It And now I think the robo-advisors, they've done two things. They've helped drive fees lower, but they've also made people realize that sometimes you need to speak to a person if you have anything more sophisticated than – Here's a quarter million dollars I want to invest this for the next 20 years. So right. are we going to just continue to see fees come under pressure both for products and advice, or, or what does the future of that area look like? I think the investment fees will come down, and I think what we're going to see is a split between investment advice, which to a degree can be commoditized. Mm-hmm. At least it's scalable. Right. And, and financial planning advice, which really is not scalable. It, it's very time intensive. It's right. expertise intensive. Uh, yeah, you can have basically the professional services model out there where you have a lot of junior partners, a lot of associates, and you give advice that way, and you take some of their fees, and the senior partners make more money. A professional services firm environment. Right. Like but, a law firm or an accounting right. firm? And, and and the top senior partners may make a million a year, mm-hmm. but in a financial planning firm, but not $10 million a year. Right, because they get they're just great at selling the high net worth clients. That's going to disappear. 
I mean, I I see exactly what you're saying. We've been watching this take place now for how many years? In the 90s, I was saying to people who were brokers, you should really think about moving to a fee-only thing. This whole brokerage universe is going away. But here it is. It's almost 20 years later, and they're still the biggest, most powerful shops on the street. So has has my forecast about this all moving to fee-only been wrong, or is it just taking longer and it's eventually going in that direction? But you're fighting huge entrenched forces with massive marketing budgets. There's a huge amount of marketing going on there, and that's hard to overcome. But I think your forecast is right because it's been happening gradually. And and right now, the investment, independent investment advisory firms, independent broker-dealer firms are going to have as much market share next year as the Wall Street firms, the, the wirehouse firms are. In terms of what? As much market assets share? On, uh, assets under management. So you're talking about trillions tr- of dollars. Tr- trillions of dollars, right. Now, now you hit the Department of Labor rule. Right. Right. What's that going to do? One is a lot of the old brokers are going to say, I don't want to deal with this. I'm out of here. I'm retired. I don't want to give up. Oh, you mean they're just done. They're They're, going away. You know, I got all these clients with IRA accounts. I don't want to practice under a fiduciary environment. I was going to retire in two years anyway. I'm I'm leaving. let, let Let me let a cat out of the bag. Let me let a secret out. It's not that hard to be a fiduciary. And if anything, it's easier because every time there's an issue, you just say to yourself, well, what's in the client's best interest? I'll do that. The the what rules we, on suitability we, are so much more complicated yeah. than just saying, what's in the client's best interest? So why do these guys want to exit? They're just not used to that world? Or to me, I'm, I'm astonished by that comment. I, I've actually seen uh, fee-only firms hire brokers, uh, exceptional people, smart people, bringing them into the fee-only fiduciary side, and they right. never adopt to the fiduciary mindset. They never understand what it means to really put the client's interest first. They think that best interest means as long as I recommend a decent product, I'm okay. But it, it is a big transition from a sales culture to a fiduciary culture, and some people just simply can't make that transition. Huh. That that That's quite astonishing to me. So I know I only have you for a certain amount of time. Let me get to some of my favorite um my favorite questions that I ask all my guests. So we discussed your background. You worked um, as an attorney doing uh, estates and, and trusts early in your career. Um, and you told us how you moved into the to the financial services industry. I'm still amused by the thought of you in a, uh, a, a blue bear costume in Disney walking around with a uh, random walk down Wall Street book <laughs> under under your arm. What, was it really like that? You were, you were in the costume reading about stocks and bonds, or <laughs> or is that an exaggeration? No, I had it tucked away. Uh, really? You know, you have so much padding in those bear costumes, it's easy to carry a book. You're usually going from one part of the park to the other right. when you're in a costume. You get off stage, you, you remove your costume or most of it, and that's when I pick up the book, and while I'm you know, rehydrating myself and catching my breath for the next uh, 30 minute set. That's when you, you pull out the book and read it. I'm trying but, to visualize but, you in a bear costume with the head on a table with like a <laughs> cup of coffee and a cigarette reading a book. That That's a great visual. Well, it was more like uh, 
12 glasses of water. You just sweat uh, your book, butt off in that. And, and the book is wrapped up in a uh, plastic bag why, or because you, you sweat so much. Yeah. You're, you're in a giant fur costume <laughs> yes. in Orlando, and it's 90 degrees in July, and, and you're rehydrating. And you're having so much fun. I can imagine. I can imagine that. Um, so we know what you did before you worked on Wall Street. Other than Walt Disney, who were some of your early uh, mentors? Oh my! Uh, you know, I think I think we take a little bit if we're smart. We take a little bit of all the good things from almost every person that we we have a significant re- relationship with. Uh, people that probably influenced me the most, I, I'd say one was Harold Avinsky. You know, okay, who is he? So Harold Avinsky uh, has a firm, Avinsky and Katz, down in Coral Gables. I, I like to call him the wise or the wise sage of the profession. He was mm-hmm. chair of the CFP board probably 15 years ago. Uh, he's a, a professor at Texas Tech in the master's program there, master's of financial planning. Uh, he's just full of insights. He's written several books. 15 years ago, I'm, I'm sitting at an AICPA conference on financial planning. Uh, thinking about getting into the industry, and he said something I'll never forget, is if you're going to become a financial advisor, commit to it fully. Don't do this part-time. And and I Meaning that the life insurance salesmen and accountants and others who are kind of dabbling in it right. really shouldn't be. Right. And I, I think that's completely true. This is a very time-consuming profession to, to stay abreast of what's of what all the changes that happen. It's, it's, it's a nice challenge, actually. And, and this, this need to make a full commitment to being an excellent financial planner, uh, those, words, those words meant a lot. And I, I think some other people that probably influenced me, pro- probably a couple of the professors that I work with now. Uh, mm-hmm. One is Andrew Head, this young professor, really the reason I, I joined Western Kentucky University. Uh, he has this way of, of captivating uh, the students in his classes, I, I've seen him do this, but and also connecting with students on a one-on-one basis. That I, I'm just absorbing his lessons on uh, on that. And then there's uh, Dr. Indu Chachi, who, you know, probably the toughest finance professor in the world. Really. Um, in terms of the assignments, the the case study methodology he uses, the amount of workload, and yet the students. One, they have this enormous respect for him. They want to please him. They, they come out of his class learning so much. And, and just to be around these two individuals and, and the other finance faculty at Western Kentucky University, uh, it's, it's really, uh, it's been already just one semester there has been this tremendous experience and I'm looking forward to more. Hmm, interesting. Um, so let's talk about investors who might have influenced you. What uh, investors have changed your thought process either about being a fiduciary, about putting money at work in the market? Who who has uh, influenced your thinking? Uh, on the fiduciary front, without a doubt, the single most influence is Professor Tamara Frankel, Boston University College of Law. And, and she's been writing about fiduciary law. She's in her 80s now, still teaching. Uh, and she's just a, a wonderful writer in fiduciary, all things fiduciary. Who gave you the 2011 Tamar Frankel Fiduciary Standard Award? What group was that? The, the Committee for the Fiduciary Standard. Mm-hmm. Uh, that award is now 
given by another organization called the Institute for the Fiduciary Standard. And I, I involved with both of them in both great groups. Uh, and uh, so it was the first time they gave that award. I had uh, done some assistance with some of their projects and uh, relating to lobbying the SEC or working educating the SEC, I, I should say. Uh, so it was a nice it was a nice surprise to get that year. Uh, but you, you know, come back to the to some the questions. You know, other influencers on the on the finance side. Uh, Gene Fama, Ken no French, with, without a question. Uh, I admire David Booth for for taking this academic approach to investing and building this huge firm out of it, uh, Dimensional Funds Advisors. Now over $400 billion. Right. That, that's you know, a huge pile of money. And, and if you're an, an advisor and you're not working with Dimensional Funds Advisors, I'm like saying, why aren't you? You know, I, I look at the universe and say, well, Dimensional's at the top. Vanguard is number two. And then there's a huge fall off after that mm-hmm. in, in terms of, the way that the mutual funds, for example, or other investment products are designed, BlackRock, engineered, Street, go down the whole run of them. Right. And, and there are some specific products that are pretty good, but but in terms of the overall platform, mm-hmm. and, and uh, I know I know it takes uh, takes something to, to be able to access Dimensional's funds, but... Uh, you for, have to be an advisor. They make you, know, you go through a bunch of hoops to right. understand what dimensions mean small cap value etc all the different factors they really don't randomly take people and their crew their the advisors who work with dimensional they are not active traders meaning that even in the 0809 collapse these guys are sitting tight and saying hey we're never going to be able to time this so we're just going to ride it out and they had almost no they may even had have had inflows they during did. that period. They did. So it's not for – so you say you don't understand why my office is a dimensional shop, mm-hmm. but I could see why some people would look at his scans and say, eh, this isn't for me. I, again, I've drank the Kool-Aid, so <laughs> I have no objectivity with this. But there are people who say, ah, we want to pick stocks or we want to try and time the market or we want to have more flexibility and if our clients want out, we're not going to tell them not to get out. Uh, I think one of the things I'm fond of saying is your clients don't know what they want, and it's your job to tell them what they need. They think they know what they want because they read a headline, some idiot right. on TV said something, but that's just a momentary lapse of reason. The, what they need is to someone is for someone to say, you may think you want this now, but let me explain what you needed. Because what just happened in China last month has nothing to do with the 30-year plan you put together about your kids going to college and your retirement and a generational wealth transfer. This is a temporary thing, not part of your plan. They need someone to tell that, even though they want to hear whatever the craziness that happens to be uh, on television that moment. You know, every investor needs to have this, this plan, investment policy. That says, you know, we we don't know if the market's going to go up or down, but we know how we're going to react to it. And we know that we need to keep these four words in mind. And and I used to hold client conferences when I was working in a firm. And, you know, you do the luncheon and you bring in 30 clients and you have a nice luncheon or dinner. And I would have all the clients stand up and repeat after me 
very loudly these four words. It comes from Solomonic wisdom. Right. Buy low, sell high. That's simple, <laughs> okay? And they would repeat that to me. And, and of course, getting them to sell usually wasn't very difficult, mm-hmm. taking gains off the table. Of course, the downturn happens. Buy low, a little bit more difficult when they don't think the world is going to exist next week to, to get them to buy when things are really low. So you would think but, if, but the world, tell you. if the world isn't going to exist, so what? So go buy yeah. stocks. What do you care? If we're all gone in a week, what does it matter? So at the time, the firm I was with, uh, and, and when I went to teaching, I, I sold my interest in the firm to my partners. Uh, we had 130 clients. 127 of them did what we asked which the market was going down, we bought. It went down further, we bought. On March 9th, just by fortunate luck, we bought again, you know. And and the clients reaped the benefits of that. Uh, and a lot of a lot of the financial behavior side of this, and mm-hmm. it doesn't matter if you're a robo-advisor or if you're a hands-on, have a deep relationship with a, a few clients, is preparing clients for what's going to happen and in advance, and getting them to remember that they committed to following this plan. Right, regardless of what happens. Look, you said markets go up, markets go down. Uh, well, pretty right. much all the time, that's what's gonna happen. Markets will go up and down. Are you emotionally ready to ride that? Right, you know, we had clients who who were gonna cancel their vacation trips. Uh, you know, 70 years old, gonna go on a cruise down a river in Europe. And, and our response to them is absolutely not. Right. Okay? No. We, we've looked at your portfolio. You can still do this. Your retirement is still secure. Go do this. Go enjoy yourself. You know? the, the market will be here when you get back. And, and that's delivering value to a client is when How, you can do that. You know, one of the questions I did not ask you earlier, but let, let's bring it up here. Uh, you mentioned 127 out of 130. 30. Yeah. How often should an advisor fire a client? Meaning, <laughs> how often is there a bad fit where, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to phrase it differently, how often is it in everybody's interest to say, hey, listen, we do X, you want Y, let's part as friends and go our separate ways? I, I think screening clients to make sure that they fit with you, mm-hmm. fit with your firm's philosophy, but also fit with your personality. There, there were clients who came to our firm that I wasn't a very good fit with personality-wise, but one of my partners was a good fit with them. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that the idea of having a firm that you have shared client relationships with is, is a tremendous opportunity to secure more clients. But there, there are probably 10%, 20% of the people out there who, who will never embrace the investment philosophy that you might be using or the manner in which you serve clients. And you have just got to be honest and say, we think you might be served better elsewhere. And, and if you take on those clients, if, you, if you're screening process, you know, I like to say, clients don't interview us, we interview them. Yes, absolutely. Right, absolutely. And if, if you take on those clients and it turns out to be a mistake, then fix that mistake right away. It's people don't realize to say, okay, we're not going to be your advisor anymore. Right. That's time consuming. It's a headache. It's disruptive. You have to file a certain thing. Every time a client leaves, you have to have a note in a file. Mm-hmm. Here's why this relationship terminated. Here's where the money met, went. Yes. So there's no money laundering issues. There's a whole bunch of regulations. You're, you're much better off screening that issue out beforehand 
rather than saying, well, we'll just bring them in and they'll fire us in two or three quarters, but in the meanwhile, we've collected the fees. It's not worth it to do that. It takes time to, to it takes a huge amount of paperwork time and also educating the client and training the client mm-hmm. in that first year. And, and you simply don't make that investment with a client unless you're really, really confident that that's going to be a good fit for you. I mentioned the email. That wasn't made up. That was a real email. Hey, I have X number of millions of dollars. Right. I want to spread this money around five people. Yep. And whoever does the best gets all the money. And I wrote this guy, hey, you're clearly a bad fit for us. <laughs> but I have to tell you, what you're setting up is a disaster, and here's why. Mm-hmm. Think about how you've just incentivized, not me because I would never do that, how you've incentivized these five managers. First, the odds are five to one against any of them winning. So you've now created this huge incentive for them to be reckless with your money in hopes of winning the big account. You've created a lose-lose situation. Four of these guys aren't going to get the account, so they're going to do God knows what. And the fifth, if he wins the account, it's going to be because he got lucky doing really risky things to show you the best performance. Why would you do this? And it was, to me, it's so obvious that's a person said, well, you don't want to compete. So obviously, (laughs) and we get, I get emails all the time. What's your sharp ratio? My sharp ratio is see you later. That's my sharp ratio. (laughs) You know, economic incentives matter and they matter a huge amount in financial services. And if, if you're a fiduciary, you have got to set yourself up that you're not driven by these incentives to do something bad for a client. And- that remains removing conflicts because if you have a conflict of interest, that is going to infect your judgment, maybe unconsciously. Right. But you're going to somehow over time self-justify doing something bad to a client if you have an economic incentive to do it. And, and that's the purpose of the fiduciary standard is to remove those economic incentives, to still be paid as an expert, as a professional. You, you deserve professional level compensation, no question about it, right? but to remove the economic incentives that really would cause you to, to do things that would harm the client in some to, way. To put you on the same side of the table as Absolutely. the client. Um, let's keep plowing through my last few questions while I, while I have you. Uh, how about some books? What are your favorite books, either <laughs> on investing or nonfiction or... Anything else that you think is is worth sharing? Uh, well, I've always been a Tom Clancy fan on the okay. fiction side. You know, I'm look. Uh, What's your favorite Clancy? I, I, some of all fears is how I found him. Uh, I would say Cardinal of the Kremlin, probably oh, the really? first one I read. Uh, That's so, interesting. So you know that remains one of my favorites. Uh, the Hunt for Red October was a good one. No doubt about that. Uh, that was gripping. Without a great on, on the nonfiction side. Uh, the investment side, you know, I like authors like Peter Bernstein, of course. Fantastic. Uh, Larry Swedrow, Rick So wait, let, let's back up a sec. Peter Bernstein, over, uh, when I was on vacation last month, I brought with me Against the Gods. Fantastic. Oh, yes. <laughs> and sitting on my desk at home on top of Against the Gods is good as gold. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Yeah, great books. You know, I go back and reread uh, those books. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Larry Swedrow's stuff. He, he tends to come out with about a book a year. So Swedro is another scorched earth. Yeah. Just nothing gets him. He was on the show. 
He was yeah. great. You meet him, he, he looks like such a quiet guy, and then he starts speaking, and there are no... Uh, lots of collateral damage, no survivors. He just mows everything down in front of him. What what book of his is is on your recommended list? I guess for for a beginning investor, uh, I like what well, Wall Street doesn't want you to know. I think it was like mm-hmm. his first or second book. You know, I, I actually had my had my uh, students read. Uh, the uh, Incredible Shrinking Alpha last semester. He has been on yes. a tear about hedge funds, private equity. Yes. He uh, just recently, uh, and I'll, I'll see if I find the link, did something that basically says 60-40 outperforms private equity. Right. Just he, He's just been a, a, a machine. But but if I had to, to say two books that are to be, if you had only two books on your bookshelf, mm-hmm. one of them are to be Roger Gibson's Asset Allocation. Roger Gibson's Asset Allocation. Right. Okay. Fifth edition now. That's a that's a pretty thick tome, isn't it? Pretty thick book. You know, it, that's it's- That's on my, that's right over my desk in the office. Right. It's it's like Rick Ferry on steroids. Okay. You know? It's, uh, so you take Rick Ferry's Asset Allocation book, which is another which book is I use- Which is very accessible and yes, very readable. I use that on undergraduate, you mm-hmm. know, and Roger Gibson's more of a, a graduate level, right. uh, professional type view of that. But the other one is is a book that's almost 100 years old now. It's you can find it on the web for free. It's uh, George Clayton's The Richest Man in Babylon. Oh sure, I read Absolutely. that a long time ago. You know you ought to reread it. Really? You ought to reread it about once every five years. I do that with Mark uh, Market Wizards by Jack Schwager. I reread <laughs> that every five or seven years. So The Richest Man in Babylon is a parable. Yes, a series so, of parables. Supposedly yes. true from from the days of. Uh, Mesopotamia and what right, have you. Right. And tell us, a, there are, by the way, there are a few books like that um, mm-hmm. that are essentially parables, but tell us about The Richest Man in Babylon. Seven major themes, and I'll just go into two of them. One is invest in yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the but the other one is probably the best illustration of how to do this. The best explanation is live below your means. The, the parables that are surround that, and there are actually two or three on that theme, are, are fantastic. And and I will buy that book and give it to clients or the sons and daughters of clients, especially those who are getting ready to graduate from college, and and say, you really need to read this. And hopefully they do, and, and some do, and they, they gain knowledge from it. Uh, it's also a pretty interesting wedding gift, by the way. Huh. <laughs> yeah. that, that's fascinating. Yeah. Um, so we talked about all the things that changed in the industry um, since since you joined the joined the industry. Anything else you want to reference as to what might be the next major shifts or recent changes of note, or have we beaten that horse? Well, you know, I think going forward, it's fairly predictable that as the fiduciary standard comes into play, high cost variable annuities are going to disappear. Equity index annuities, I, I love the concept of them mm-hmm. uh, as a fixed income alternative. I think they're marketed co- incorrectly. Uh, the cost structure is not transparent at all. The, the the control the insurance company has over it is not correct. Isn't that true with all insurance products? The cost structure is not transparent? Uh, to a large degree. You know, variable life, uh, variable annuities, the cost structure is more transparent than whole life, universal life. Equity index annuities, there's really no uh, transparency. It's a great concept, but the implementation of it 
has been poor. Mm-hmm. And it makes tough, really tough for a fiduciary to recommend an equity index annuity right now. Uh, I haven't found one that, I, that I'm comfortable recommending. Uh, immediate annuities, they ought to be used a lot more often. What sort of annuities? Immediate fixed income annuities. Okay. So retirees should probably take a portion of their wealth mm-hmm. and annuitize it. Maybe not all in one chunk, maybe over time. Early retirees with an inflation rider. Uh, so this way they know they have a guaranteed income no matter right. what happens in the market. Right. And the real risk at that point becomes inflation, not running out of money. Exactly. We move that. You know, and I'm, I'm a little suspect about the whole concept of longevity annuities. I, mm-hmm. I, I think that it's a great concept. You get pick up the mortality credits, and it does assuage the fear of that, but I think you're giving up a lot. And, and a lot more research, I think, is needed in that area as to whether or not that is really fits very well with the rest of our portfolio. Well, what we, it's funny, there was an article in Barron's about this. In our fixed income portfolio, we're in the midst of trend. So every year we do a big look-see and say, what do we want to keep? What, what's better? What's, and usually we don't do a whole lot of anything. But over the past year, the bond-dated ETFs have come out. And there was just an article in Barron's, and we started doing, looking at this a while ago, where you could create a laddered fixed income portfolio using low-cost ETFs. So if someone's concerned about, well, what happens if rates rise? Well, look, when the 016 ends, you take that cash and you buy the 019. And when the 017 ends, and that's the sort of technology, that's the sort of product, which is a dirty word on Wall Street. Mm -hmm. You could not do that two years ago. It it didn't really exist. Yeah, you could have you know, target date funds in a 401k, but you couldn't say, I want to take X amount of uh, my fixed income portfolio and have it constantly be rolling. It's really a a fascinating innovation that I think a lot of people don't understand. If you can remove interest rate risk or at least manage it substantially in in this type of environment with this laddered approach that you're talking about, that is probably the best fixed income strategy for the next decade. It, it, it's quite fascinating. If it was, if you go a little longer, it would be great. But I think right now you could go out three or four years uh, using iShares. I don't know if you could go out much further. Um, but it really a, another I, one of those uh, issues that there, the technology just didn't, the products didn't exist a few years ago. Right. Um, next question. So we talked about major shifts. Let, let's talk about my favorite two questions. My last two questions. So you work with a lot of students. You work with a lot of Millennials and and I don't know what we're calling the generation after millennials if if they've renamed them yet. What advice would you give to somebody graduating school this year who was interested in looking into a career in finance? Find a firm that's going to invest in you. Uh, you don't say I'm going to go hit the ground running and be able to do everything that a full blown financial advisor needs. Really think about the first year, the first, this, perhaps the second year, as a residency process. Work extremely hard. Get your certified financial planner certification done in that first year, uh, probably by the end of the first year, in addition to whatever licenses that you need. Uh, work hard. Think about it as a, as a medical residency working not perhaps that hard, but but hard, mm-hmm. and learn all that you can. 
absorb whatever you can. Once you have that couple years of experience in this industry and you've invested in yourself that way, you can write your own ticket. And, and hopefully you'll stay with the firm that you join and they will have a career path for you and you see your future with that firm, you enjoy that firm. But if, if that doesn't work out and you have invested in yourself and the firm is invested in you, then you will you are a very marketable person right now in terms of the demand for for experienced financial planners right now. And my final question: What is it that you know about investing today that you wish you knew twenty years ago when you when you began? One thing: uncertainty. Uh, it is prevalent. It is with us. It will always be with us. I'm amazed at how many financial planning programs are set up to say, or, or we design a portfolio so that you can retire by the time you're 58, right? Well, guess what? You know, there's a lot of uncertainty about the future of returns. Mm -hmm. I think innovation is going to be great in the United States as long as we fuel, fuel it with a lot of capital. We apply a fiduciary standard. We remove this this rent extraction that Wall Street does, over time that's going to lead to greater capital accumulation in the United States and help propel our economy forward. Uh, so I'm, I'm very optimistic about the U.S. economy compared to, I guess, most of my fellow colleagues uh, over the next decade, over the next two, three decades. Uh, but th this whole concept that there's a lot of uncertainty out there still and we shouldn't be telling clients, you're going to retire at 58. We ought to be telling clients, I can help you retire early. I don't know when that will be. But I know that if you followed my advice over the long term, if you stick with this discipline process that we're going to implement, then I know that you will be able to achieve whatever your lifetime goals are faster and better. And and that's the type of promise that we ought to be telling our clients, not giving them such a hard line, this is when you're going to accomplish something. Ron, this has been great. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time. If people want to find more of your writings, where would they go? Uh, my blog, scholarfp.blogspot.com. And on Twitter, you are? 140LTD. I don't know where you came up with that, 140 uh, Limited. characters. I, I want to thank um, my head of research, Mike Batnick, and my producer, Charlie Vollmer, for help putting this together. Be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on iTunes to see uh, the other 75 or so podcasts we've done. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.